0: Number 348, we've been asked to mark, and certainly uh, please uh, please do that in preparation for the proper time and during the service, and we'll stand and sing that together. Let me begin the lesson this evening, if I might, with a note of appreciation to those men who uh, Brother Roger announced this morning, who will be filling in next Lord's Day in, in, in my absence. I certainly appreciate uh, those three men that have not only the talent, but have more than graciously agreed to use those talents in a way to... Uh, carry on the services and do a fine and fantastic job in doing so only a somewhat saddened and sorrowful that I'll not be able to, to listen to the wonderful lessons both in Bible study and during the sermons as they are shared. Certainly would ask your prayers during, uh, to be my family and me as uh, we'll be at the Locust Grove congregation that morning. We'll be there sharing uh, in, in a gospel meeting that's somewhat unusually organized. Uh, it's meeting on the Sundays in the month of August. So uh, we'll be there on the second Sunday, and of course it'll be August 9th. We'll be there in the morning services for that. This evening, as we continue our series of lessons on the book of John, you'll notice we've arrived at the ninth installment in that series already in our studies, and we come to one entitled Jesus and Satan. And I hope that, as you noticed in the reading a few moments ago, we'll be challenged just a bit to recollect and to somewhat ponder that series of events in which the Lord actually washed the feet of the disciples. We have a few things to do to build up to that point in the lesson, but let's begin it with perhaps some introductory thoughts along this line, if we might. Again, with the Bible bold now, not that far into the future, we continue to encourage our young people in their studies And as they see us studying on the Sunday evening times and throughout the week, perhaps they can be also encouraged in their study of John. And haven't we been reminded of the divinity of the Savior? The fact that He was God in the flesh, able to in fact perform majestic miracles, but also able to experience a marvelous compassion toward those who were hurting or those who were in need of the message of salvation. During the first chapters, John chapters 1 all the way to chapter 12, verse 11 is where we've come to this point. And during those times, we have seen any number of things that have reminded us of truly how great the Savior was and is and how blessed we are to be His servants. I would submit to you that things will not change, at least in those ways tonight, But as we look at Jesus, we will learn tonight a number of things about Satan as well. And I hope that as we extract some lessons at opportune times, we'll be reminded about this great enemy that we face, and we'll be perhaps better prepared to at least realize how serious an enemy he is and how urgently our preparation to meet him must be. With those ideas as brief introduction we will look at chapter 12 verse 12 all the way to chapter 13 verse 30 in our study tonight and certainly as we do that i will be somewhat brief in the exposition of the text and then we will look more carefully at some of the lessons to be drawn from it first of all beginning in john 12 verse number 12 already by this point we are nearing the close of the lord's public ministry That may seem such a shocking thing for we're only just a little over halfway through the book of John and yet we are already near the time when in fact the series of events will rapidly lead to Calvary. will lead to that time when he was crucified on the cross. In fact in John chapter 12 beginning in verse 12 we are rather immediately reminded that he is already near to the place of Jerusalem. We learn from Luke's gospel account. In Luke 9 verse 51, that the Lord had begun to make his way toward Jerusalem quite some time in the past. And any number of events and parables and miracles and stories took place. But when we come to John 12 verse number 12, you might notice that the text there simply reads as follows with me. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem... That journey that the Lord had begun in Luke 9, 51 is now about to terminate with His presence in Jerusalem. And it will be the same place where not too many days from now, in fact, His life will be taken from Him as He's nailed on a cross. And all of that is about to remind us that in the intervening time between now and then, we have a number of chapters to discuss. John really focuses the microscope, if you please, on the last week of the Lord's life, and really pinpoints the night prior to his crucifixion, and gives us an eyewitness account of many of the things that were so dear to him, and that touched his life so dramatically, and that should always be remembered even by you and me today. On this occasion, as the Lord came close to Jerusalem, he entered the city in a way that is sometimes called a triumphal entry. When the crowd saw and heard that he was coming, they in fact strode palm branches or met him with palm branches. And in that way, the Lord actually entered the city riding on a donkey's colt. That may seem such an odd thing to you and me because here was the king of all the universe riding on a lowly beast of poverty and a beast of burden and a beast that's not always recognized as being terribly smart and bright. We notice that that, of course, fulfills prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. The ancient prophet had said that the king would ride, in fact, on an ass's colt. And this was the prophecy that, in fact, was fulfilled on this occasion as our Lord entered Jerusalem. To appreciate the nature of that entry, we noticed, of course, that there were many who did come to believe in Jesus. They were amazed by the miracles. They were amazed by the teaching. They were mesmerized by the way in which he could interact with and even, in some instances, overcome the plans of the Jewish leaders. But yet, that is certainly not to say that there were some who did not believe. Despite the miracles, despite the teaching, and despite the other activities of his life, there were those who adamantly refused to believe. And we'll notice even in this chapter, notice the following classifications. It fulfilled, in fact, some Old Testament prophecy that there would be those who did not believe. Notice verses 37 and following, in fact, in John chapter 12. There, the writer John informs us from the book of Isaiah out of the Old Testament that this fulfilled much of what Isaiah had uttered in the sixth chapter of that book. It is an amazing thing, isn't it, to contemplate, though, that there were some Greeks who came with a desire stated as follows, We desire to see Jesus. I might submit all of us should have that desire still today. Sir, we would see Jesus. As these Greeks came, they first addressed that to Philip. Philip, it seems, shared the information with Andrew, and they together went and told Jesus. The Lord stated, Mine hour is now come. There was other work that he needed to attend to at the near time, at the present moment. Amazingly enough, Jesus on that occasion proceeded to speak about his mission to earth. I wonder, did Jesus know why he left heaven? Did he know why he came to earth? Not only did he know, he stated it more than once in the New Testament epistles, those gospel accounts. Here you notice he expressly said, "...for the purpose of carrying forth the message of salvation, that's why I came." Earlier he had said, my will is to do the will of him that sent me, John 6 verse 38. And in John 4 verse 34, he had already affirmed that, my meat, again, is to do the will of him that sent me. May we understand the clarity of purpose that was characteristic of the Lord's life. Maybe we should, in fact, ask that of ourselves. Is your mission and mine as clearly known in our mind as was His? Do we know why we're here? Do we know the purpose of our life? And do we know the end point of it? If we do not, we need to seriously and quickly make that aright, because the Scriptures reveal what you and I should have as our highest priority and our highest mission in life. As we notice those things about the Lord, he also spoke about his death on the cross. You see, the Lord knew what was now only a few days away. His triumphal entry occurred as nearly as we can tell on Sunday of that week. Six days from now he will be hanging on a cross. Six days. The Lord knew what was going to happen on Friday. He understood very well what the purpose and the mission of his life was and that it was for all of those who, of course, were sinners and that his blood would be shed upon their behalf. Can you imagine the burden, knowing, the anguish, the physical travail, the physical anguish and difficulties that he was to bear not many days hence? All of that helps us to appreciate that beneath the burden of those things, nevertheless, the Lord still did not commit any sins. Those things bring us to a set of lessons I wish us to initially consider. Notice some of the things that we can readily learn out of these matters we've so quickly discussed. First of all, I would invite your attention with me to verse 25 of John chapter 12. The text says, "...he that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal." That statement by Jesus seems a paradoxical one, doesn't it? And there have been those who, are, who have defined a paradox as truth standing on its head to gain attention. And maybe that's a fair way to consider it. Here Jesus again said, He that loveth his life shall lose it. Interesting, isn't it, for the Lord to say that person who loves his life What life, Lord? The context affirms for us that life that's now in the flesh, that life that is descriptive of what occurs here now on earth. He that has that as his dearest and highest goal is going to lose his eternal life. His life that would be descriptive of the greater and better one beyond. That's the way the Lord was teaching on this occasion. But notice he went on to say, He that hateth this life in this world... And that prepositional phrase, in this world, explains it all, doesn't it? He doesn't, of course, mean that we should go out and take our life by virtue of suicide. His employment of the word hate reminds us that more than once in the Greek, that that word simply means to love less, to appreciate less than something else. Thus, verse 25, he that loveth less his life in this world, shall keep it, his life, unto life eternal. That again helps us see that the Lord's mission and purpose was to focus our attention upon the life that's beyond. That does lead us to ask the question, though, doesn't it? What about you and what about me? Do we love this life here, or do we hate it as described by the Lord? For that will determine how eternity will be for us. If we love this life, We're going to lose that one. But if we hate this life, we will have life eternal for us. That set of questions, of course, prompts us to inquire diligently into the character of our life now. But not only that, notice some passages that are so often used and mentioned by us as we think about the Lord's teaching on these matters. In Matthew, the sixth chapter, especially beginning in verses 18 and 19, the Lord there said, "...lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rusteth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth rust rusteth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is," verse 21, "...there will your heart be also." And hence the Lord was here saying, "...make certain your treasure is laid up in such a place that eternal life will be the reward." Isn't it interesting that John also affirmed for us concerning this world that we are to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of the Lord abideth forever. Those two seem to harmonize so perfectly with the text that we've just noted And they seem to move us really toward perhaps yet another lesson. It is found this time in verse number 38. On that occasion we read, That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spake, Lord, who hath believed every port? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? That reminds us of the significance of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Perhaps there are times that as you and I read the Old Testament, we perhaps gain some glimpse of the importance of the prophecies found within it. But maybe we are not as common as we should be at appreciating the absolute significance and the great essentiality of those prophecies. For instance, as I've listed for your consideration here, those prophecies, yea, are some of the strongest proofs that this book is from God. Those prophecies are in some instances unanswerable arguments as to the inspiration of the Scriptures, as to the identity of the Savior, and as to the character of the New Testament church. All three are addressed in the Old Testament by virtue of prophecy, and in the clarity with which they are set forth, they again are in some instances unanswerable proofs of the nature of what those entities really are. Perhaps you and I can see then, that those prophecies as well as the lessons of the Old Testament are to be appreciated and understood. For isn't it still true that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. But then in the third place, yet another lesson that we can consider, this one found in verses 43 and 44, especially verse number 43. It says, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. In context, we notice that this were some Jews who, in fact, in verse 42, we are told that they believed in Jesus, but they did not confess Him because they were fearful that they would be cast out of the synagogue. And then the explanation of verse 43 follows. Again, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That is an age-old problem, isn't it? To love the compliments, to love to be categorized as normal or accepted in the eyes of men, and to consider that a higher priority than, in fact, to consider the praise of God. Sometimes we still today think about the peer pressure that our youngsters face in light of that, the desire that they have to be treated not as weird or not as unusual or not as different, but to be welcomed into the society of teenage normalcy. Notice here were some adults who in fact believed in the Lord but refused to confess Him because they feared what would happen by them being cast out of the synagogue. I would submit that all of us face the pressure to be categorized as normal, to be accepted in the group, to not be looked upon as unorthodox or different, to not be looked upon as unusual. There are several lessons that one could in fact learn from these two verses alone. I have tried to again be somewhat short in noticing that we'll only focus on what about the praise? Where do you and I long to find the praise? Do we much prefer the pat on the back of those who would then treat us as friendly? Or would we prefer to have God look upon us and to lift us high as His friend? I think in our better moments we all know which is the preferable, and we know which from the perspective of eternity is the better. But in the heat of the moment, I realize we each can find it hard to have enough courage and enough bravery and enough devotion and dedication to the Word of God to stand firm and to, in fact, rebuke another when that is what's necessary and to directly confront a problem of sin in perhaps the life of what's being encouraged upon ourselves. But we need to have the courage and the bravery to do that, don't we? Here, these who believed still were not satisfactory in the eyes of God. That helps us see, doesn't it, that belief alone cannot possibly be enough to stand right before God. For here were some men who believed, but it did not result in confession. And it did not result in a proper lifestyle before the Heavenly Father. May we understand belief must emanate in the characteristic of righteous and obedient works, and only in that way does it produce the fruit that is acceptable unto God. Paul, in fact, on another occasion in Galatians 1 verse 10 said, If I should be the servant of men, or if I should seek to please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. We can't have it both ways then, can we? To please men is to not please Christ. You and I have to make a choice and a decision. Will we side with the Savior or will we side with human popularity? Our Savior was not a men-pleaser. He preached the truth straight down the middle, and oddly enough, when those who would not accept it, the Lord didn't apologize for it. He asserted the necessity of bending one's stubborn will to the truth He had proclaimed. Did He not do that to those hard-line Jews in John chapter 5? Had He not done that to a host of others, and He'll do so again in Matthew 23? We need to appreciate the sternness of that lesson at times even in our lives today. These matters point us then to chapter number 13 and the last section of our lesson tonight. In the 13th chapter of John, we come to again review another set of notes as we lead up to some lessons that we'll extract from this chapter. But no doubt, one of the most familiar scenes of chapter 13 is the one that we'll focus on more carefully in just a moment. Jesus had given commandment to Peter and to John to make preparation for the observance of the Passover. He and his apostles were going to gather at the proper Hebrew time that evening and celebrate that Passover that was filled with Old Testament significance. In fact, it had been in place at least in the main ever since the twelfth chapter of Exodus. And on this occasion, as preparation had been made. We know that a number of things were to take place this night. Jesus and his apostles at the proper hour would gather in an upper room in Jerusalem, and there they would celebrate the Passover. But there were several unusual things about this observance of the Passover for roughly 1,500 years that had been celebrated. And it had been done so with the Jews understanding its purpose, knowledgeable of its significance, and aware of what was to take place that evening. And to be sure, many traditions had come to have their place in that observance. But I might ask you to notice three things that occurred that made that night very unusual compared to a normal observation. First of all, there was the fact that Jesus instituted, later in this same week, the nature, or in fact on this occasion, the nature of the Lord's Supper. And in that observance, we notice the pristine beauty of that memorial that we still are able to appreciate even today. But what's more, we also notice on that night that Jesus identified who his betrayer would be. He made it public knowledge to those apostles therein gathered. Thirdly, he took a basin of water and he washed their feet. All of those things were unusual in regard to the observance of the Passover. Let's in fact give a bit more attention to the last one of the three, the washing of the apostles' feet. As that is set before us in the 13th chapter of John, we are rather amazingly reminded of just how marvelous the Lord's teaching capabilities were. Let's highlight some of these specific features. We are told that Jesus rose from supper, and as he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel, prepared a basin of water, and proceeded one by one to wash the feet of the apostles therein gathered. As he washed their feet, he came, of course, to Peter, at least in due course. Peter at first was highly resistant. You'll never wash my feet, Peter affirmed the Lord in his calm and fantastic fashion simply responded, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you're no part of me. Peter in haste responded, not my feet only, but my head and my hands. And Peter at that point was more than excited to have the Lord to wash him. We can also notice that Jesus identified his betrayer that evening. As he did, he did it using some bread. He took a piece of bread, and as the apostles made note of the question, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Jesus had affirmed that the betrayer was present, and upon being prompted, the Lord said, Whom I give the bread to will be the one that will betray me. Jesus took a piece of bread and handed it to Judas chariot. Judas, we are rather rapidly told, was then described in the following way. Satan entered into Judas. Judas rather immediately went out into the night, and began to make ready the things identifying the betrayal. All of that is such an overwhelming thing to consider in a way. It does lead us to these three lessons, I think. And as we look at these lessons, they in fact take the following form. And I invite your attention to these three. First of all, what about the washing of the feet? Why did the Lord choose to do that on this night? Why did the Lord choose, in fact, to set forth the idea concerning the matter of the washing of their feet. After all, that was not a part of the typical Passover celebration. Notice some of these statements, if you would. The principal idea that Jesus wished to get across to those gathered there was the necessity of humility. The necessity of not striving to be personally great, but to be a servant to one's fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to be a servant to others. In fact, humble service to others is highlighted on so many occasions in the Scriptures. In Proverbs 16 verse 19, humility is lifted high even in the days of the Old Testament. As the Proverbs writer affirmed, you and I should not be those of a haughty spirit, but should desire to in fact live humbly In Micah 6, verse 8, what was the singular mission of that day? What doth the Lord require of thee, O man, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Humility was highlighted both in that Old Testament text and also in that earlier one of the book of Proverbs. In James 4, verse 6, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Those things remind us that this scene would have been an unforgettable occasion in the life of these apostles. After all, again, they were shortly to see Jesus go to a cross. If this man, who was truly the Son of God and the Lord of all, would in fact stoop to the point of washing my feet, is that not a symbol of the kind of humble service that I should render not only to him, but to those who are his servants? It is, in fact, a remarkable thing to consider the power of that symbolic message. You might notice that there are some in our world even to this day who have used that to teach that it is still a proper and right thing for us to wash the feet of each other as a part of service and as a part of worship. Let us read just a verse or two and see, perhaps, why they might initially have reached that conclusion. In verse number 13 and 14 of John 13, this is the statement that is found. Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. And again, there are some who have taken that statement and affirmed that that implies this is an expected part of worship even to this day. That's not what that statement means. In fact, notice just a few other comments that one mustn't overlook if one is to properly interpret this statement and this passage. Look back up to verse number 7, if you would, please. On this occasion, as the Lord had begun to make His way, washing each of their feet, it says, Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do now thou knowest not, but thou shalt know hereafter. Now, the apostles knew very well he was washing their feet. But yet the Lord had said, What I do now you do not yet know. So apparently the major lesson housed in this was not to wash their feet. For that they well understood. Even Peter affirmed, You'll never wash my feet. Clearly, we see that there was something else majorly in the mind of the Savior that went far beyond merely the physical washing of their feet. But notice what's more we might also easily appreciate a bit later in verses 15 and 16, this is what we read. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Interesting, isn't it? The Lord had just said, you do not understand at this point what I have just done, but yet I have given you an example. Clearly the example was not the literal washing of their feet. Otherwise, he would not have stated, you do not know what it is that I am doing to you at this point. Then in verse 16, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither is he that is, I'm sorry, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Could it be that that is the principal idea to keep in mind, that they were to understand in humility that if he, their Lord and Master, had washed their feet, emblematic of the following idea that the servant is not greater than his Lord. They should appreciate the humble willingness to serve others, to serve their God, whatever it is that he asks and demands of them to do. No task is too small. No task is too meager. And might I suggest, isn't it that way still for you and me today? Whatever the talent is that God has so blessed us with, May we with gladness be more than willing to use it to serve Him and to not let others tell us that's a low talent or that's a noble talent. Friend, any talent that God has given us is one that can be used in some way to His glory and to His service. And may we be more than eager to discover ways we can employ it to carry out His will and to do so for the betterment of the human family in regard to the grace of God. But that only points us to yet a second lesson in this same 13th chapter. Notice, what about the thrust of verse number 17? It says, If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. And I've simply entitled that, Knowing and Doing. We each, I think, are very apprised of the value of knowledge. We encourage our youngsters in their pursuit of knowledge We, in fact, demand that they attend school systems, perhaps for 13 years and then on into college for another four or five or more years. And as we encourage that, we admire their dedication to learn and to master and to learn to apply that which they have come to be so familiar with. But might we observe in the spiritual realm that knowledge alone is not sufficient. Knowledge alone needs to be, in fact, meet application to meet implementation, to put it simply, to do it. And here, notice he said, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Where is it that happiness is thus found? Is it in knowing, or is it it in knowing coupled with doing? And it's the latter, isn't it? For again, the Lord used that little word, if. Isn't it amazing how much truth can be housed in such a little word two letters if he said you know these things happy are ye if you do them two times the Lord used the word if implying a condition and it's only that we notice that happiness is found by both knowing and by doing I've listed some other thoughts for us to consider in light of those things may we revisit Eve in the days of the long past did she know the will of God In fact, when Satan questioned her about it, she was able to quote verbatim what it was that the Lord had said to her. You are not to partake of that tree in the midst of the Garden of Eden. In fact, you're not even to touch it. She very well knew that, but now the question, knowing it, did she do it? And now, of course, the answer is different, isn't it? Though she knew what the Lord had said, she did not implement the restraint that he had commanded. Thus she did not put into practice that which he said. Was she happy? Was she blessed? Was she favored by God? Of course not. Sin entered into the world, didn't it? She, of course, shortly thereafter gave to her husband Adam. He ate as well. And we have often noted the misery, the sadness, the sorrow, and the sin that came into the world on that occasion. Maybe yet another example. In Matthew 7, verse 24, We have often noted the familiarity of this familiar story, but certainly not only is it good for our children, our youngsters, it's good for you and I as older ones as well. Notice there Jesus talked about a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains came, the winds beat upon it, the floods in fact began to beat around that house. And the Lord said it fell and great was the fall of it. But he also spoke in the same passage about a wise man who built his house upon a rock, and though the winds came and though, in fact, the rains came upon it, it did not fall because it was founded upon something solid. What was the lesson in that? What did the foolish man represent? And what did the wise man represent? The representation of each was stated by Jesus. The foolish man represented a person who heard but did not do. The wise man, on the other hand, represented one who not only heard, but did implement, but did do that which he had heard. And hence, we can ask today, are you and I the wise, or are we the foolish? Are we founding our life upon something solid and strong by not only knowing, but doing what we know we should be doing? That question, of course, will last with you and me for a lifetime because it's a daily matter, isn't it? Am I doing today what I should be doing today? Or am I simply knowing and not doing? That will not be sufficient. That, in fact, points us to the last lesson for tonight, the entrance of Satan. We've already mentioned in passing about Judas, But let me direct your attention to two passages that speak interestingly about the entrance of Satan. First of all, let us look at verse number 27. Verse 27 of John 13, it says, And after the sop, that's the piece of bread that the Lord was about to hand to Judas, it says, And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly." And we might now ask the question, it says, Satan entered Judas. So was this scene much like, for instance, some of the demon possession issues that we have seen in the New Testament? Like, for instance, that Gadarene man who was a wild man living amongst the tombs, he was demon possessed. Here were demons that had entered into him. It gave him superhuman strength, able to break chains, and and also he cut himself, apparently unable to restrain himself. Is that the way in which Satan entered Judas? Without any choice on Judas' part, without anything that Judas could do to withdraw or in fact remain a distance from him, did Judas have any control over Satan's entrance into him? That's a good question, isn't it? And it's one worthy of a bit of reflection. Thankfully, some other information is given in this same chapter. Let's look back earlier in the chapter. In John chapter 13, verse number 2, let's read it and allow it to aid us as we understand this somewhat better. It says, And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. There was a critical element that we are told here that was not mentioned explicitly in verse 27. It says here that the devil, which of course is Satan, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Notice the presence of the word heart. Judas' intellect, his mind, his volition, that part of him that was a decision-making matter. Satan had put thoughts, or at least placed before him these thoughts. And Judas, as we read in verse 27, Satan had now full course because that had been Judas' choice. May we never think that Judas had no choice in this matter. He made his own decision to betray the Savior. He made his own decision to allow Satan full intercourse in his life. As we see in the language of verse 2, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas' chariot, that perhaps leads us to notice amazingly that you and I should be careful guarders of our heart as well. Satan can bring temptations before us and if we simply follow along and we proceed to become servants to the temptation, we are in the same at least analogous position as was Judas. Satan now has us where he'd like us to be. Our heart is following him and not Jesus. Satan, as he put these temptations before Judas by virtue of the money, by virtue of any other thing to which it touched we notice that Satan had now entered into Judas. I have listed some verses that I hope remind us of the importance of the heart. In Proverbs 4, verse 23, as well as Proverbs 23, 7, we read passages like this, that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. We thus must be very careful to guard carefully the heart, for aren't we reminded in that other passage that, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. What you and I ultimately are starts in that heart. What do we think about? What do we dwell upon? What do we allow to fill our time? Is it on things that are noble and good and goodly? Or is it on those things that Satan can use to cause us finally to be a full-blown servant of his? You and I have that choice to make. Satan cannot force his way into where he's not invited. As we ponder that idea, no wonder we are told in other passages, say in Revelation, about the carefulness with which we must ever be aware of the presence of Satan, what he's able to do, and the care that we must have to guard ourselves from him. To say all of that is to bring us near the close of our lesson this evening. And as we perhaps summarize it very quickly in these ways, we've continued our study of John. We've now advanced relatively close to the crucifixion. We have seen the institution of some wonderful things on this night in regard to the celebration of the Passover, the mention about the Lord's Supper and its institution, if you please, the six lessons that we've studied tonight, reminding us one by one about the need to hate our life here, the character and power of understanding Old Testament prophecy in its place, as well as, finally, the praise of men, how that we should love the praise of God more. The last three lessons took this form, the understanding of what it meant for the Lord to wash the feet of those apostles, what it is to understand knowledge as well as implementing it, and finally, the understanding of this last matter of the entrance of Satan. Tonight, as we examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith 2 Corinthians 13.5 May we remember that we must prove our own selves whether we are in the faith. What does your proof lead others to see? Do they see an unmistakable proof and example of Jesus and his gospel? Or do they see something else? Something that's maybe confusing. If you never become a Christian tonight, it's for sure they haven't seen the Savior in you because to this point you're not a part of him. You need to understand the position of yourself as being lost, come to Him tonight. If you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, Repent of your sins. Come before Him in a public way, confessing His name, and then be baptized. If we could help you do that, what a wonderful day for us and you and the great angels of heaven it would be. If you have begun that walk with Him, but you no longer are faithful to Him, it's not He that has moved, it's you. Come back to your first love." The church in Ephesus was told that in Revelation 2, you tonight could also come back to your first love. We pray with you and for you for forgiveness, and God has promised to reinstate you to your rightful place at his side. If we could help you tonight in either of those ways, wouldn't you let that be known if you would in a public way while together we stand and while we sing?